there, I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Welcome everyone to this very, very important Anzac Day tribute on the Aging Fearlessly program on Radio Northern Beaches. One of the most significant days in the Australian and New Zealand calendar, Anzac Day, is coming up on the 25th of April and it is time for us to remember, reflect and pay tribute to all the men and women from Australia and New Zealand who have given so much to protect our country. Sadly, for many, they lost their lives. Joining me today on Radio Northern Beaches and the Aging Fearlessly podcast is Matt McLaughlin. Matt is an acclaimed historian. He's also the author of the best-selling battlefield guidebooks, Walking with the Anzacs, which is the definitive guide to the Western Front. Matt is also the founder of the Battlefield Tours, Australia's leading specialist battlefield tour company. In 2018, Matt launched Living History, a series of podcasts and YouTube documentaries to assist people to connect with the Anzac history and other important history around the world. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Karen. It's great to be here. It's fantastic to have you on board at this time because for a lot of people, I, I think sometimes they forget the significance of Anzac Day and it's a good reminder. And this year, it's going to be very different for the first time in 100 years. It's an unusual one this year because of obviously social distancing and lockdowns. Uh, people are not going to be allowed to go out and join marches. There won't be any marches for the first time in a long time. Uh, There won't be the typical day of dawn services and then drinks at the pub and catching up with old mates and veterans and and everything that we we associate with Anzac Day. So it is going to be difficult for people, Um, I think especially for those veterans who who will miss that camaraderie that they normally have on Anzac Day. So a big adjustment for everyone, but uh, we all understand the reasons why and uh, hopefully we'll still do our best to show our respects. Yeah, when you normally celebrate Anzac Day, do you have something special? Do you go into Martin Place? What do you normally do? I have done that typically in the past. These days I tend to be doing media work or I'm overseas. Uh, so uh, this is the first Anzac Day in a long time where I've actually been in Australia, which is I mean, probably in Gallipoli or in France or Vietnam or somewhere else just as exotic. So it's quite nice to be back in Australia uh, at this time for the first time in a, in a very long time. Yes, I forgot that you, you're normally on tour, but let's talk about the significance of the celebrations here in Australia. Well, we've been commemorating Anzac Day um, since the First World War. So it commemorates, obviously, the landing in Anzac Cove on the 25th of April, 1915. But the first Anzac Day services were held in Australia in 1916 on the centenary of the landing. So there was heavy fighting going on on the Western Front in France and Belgium at that time. Uh, and yet Australia still found time to stop and pause and remember that Anzac landing. So Gallipoli was iconic from the first moments. It was always iconic. It was always very emotive with people back in Australia. 
and that's continued to today. So after the First World War, we saw the uh, the big the marches welcoming the troops home and commemorating the the anniversary of the landing at Anzac Cove, mm-hmm. and obviously Anzac Day has since expanded to include the Second World War, Korea, the Malayan Emergency, Vietnam, all the other conflicts that came uh, after that, including sadly the recent conflicts such as Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. So Anzac Day has expanded to become a national day of commemoration for all men and women who've served and particularly those who've died in times of war. So it really is one of the most significant days on the calendar. Yeah, and it is very important, as you uh, mentioned, to include the more recent wars because those people are doing doing us proud and doing um, a job of protecting us. Yeah, I think it's a really important point that we should remember Anzac Day isn't just about old men in wheelchairs from wars that took place 50 years ago. This is about young people now as well. And there's there's about 50,000 young veterans uh, out there from the more recent conflicts. And so um, so it's important we remember them as well because they're, it's important to understand that Anzac Day is not about the past. Anzac Day is about the current serving generation as well. And it's just as important that we remember them. And, you know, yes, the marches and the celebrations, the major one down at Martin Place and, of course, around the northern beaches and different locations and the RSLs all supporting Anzac Day. Uh, and, and so many people get involved and really, I know for me, I'm a swimmer in Manly and we do a big celebration every year down on the beach at Manly and with the last post and, you know, sometimes as many as seven or 800 of us in a group on the beach and, that feeling of um, respect and honouring and the stories that are told there by individuals um, is just, it's just a wonderful way to celebrate. You're right. And it's one of the most significant parts of Anzac Day is that collaborative commemoration with the, with the community. So I think that's what's going to be lacking this year, that ability for people to go and do exactly as you described, to gather in a big group on the beach, to, to pay their respects or to march through their local town or to just attend their local RSL and have a game of two up. These are things that are really going to be lacking. What's not going to be lacking is that feeling of respect. People are still, it just doesn't mean that people have forgotten. It doesn't mean that they don't respect what's been done. It just means that we're a little bit curtailed in the way we can express that. So I think it's important that people still do whatever they can to find a way of of expressing that they still remember and they still respect what war veterans have done. So let's talk about the more modern-day wartime, Vietnam War, Afghanistan, Syria. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think it's an interesting question. They're really... I mean, Vietnam now is 50 years ago. The, you know, we're looking at the 50th anniversaries of those battles. In fact, next year will be the 50th anniversary of Australia's last action in the Vietnam War. So wow. even Vietnam is a very long time ago now. Um, but Vietnam was really the first of those wars that you know, without getting into the controversial side of it that was fought for probably more political reasons than anything to do with territory or, or the, um, you know, or protection of life or other things that we'd seen in previous wars. So there was, you know, with Vietnam, it was very much for a, there's always, there was always politics involved in every war, but Vietnam was the first time that overtly we participated in a war for, for fairly political reasons to stop the spread of communism and to support America. And that's really continued on to today. The, the wars that we see today are quite distinct from those wars that we saw in the past, like particularly the First and Second World War. And there's a couple of important distinctions. Firstly, in the First and Second World Wars, the people who fought them were citizen soldiers. They were ordinary people that worked in ordinary jobs. And for a period oh. of time, 
took on a new job, which was being in the army and going off and fighting a war. Uh, and so that we have to create a big distinction between the citizen soldiers of the first and second world wars and the highly trained professionals of today's wars. And Vietnam in some ways was a transition because you had regular um, members of the army, but you also had, and the other services as well, not just the army, you had regular uh, serving members, um, but also um, national servicemen. So conscription uh, was part of the Vietnam experience. But today we have very highly trained, very well-equipped, very well-led professional soldiers. So there are many times fewer soldiers now participating in the modern campaigns because of the, the new nature of the Defence Force, uh, the use of technology and the way war has really evolved. Um, so it's important to create that distinction between the, the highly trained professionals of today and the really enthusiastic amateurs of the First and Second World Wars. Um, but those wars today come with a, a complication that didn't exist in the, in the First and Second World Wars, which was it was very clear why we were fighting those wars and what we were trying to achieve. The wars since Vietnam onwards have been cloudy in terms of whether we should even be participating, what the objective was, how, you know, how we would define success in those theatres. And we've seen, we've seen virtually the same result from Vietnam onwards with, the, with these conflicts that's very, very difficult to, to achieve what you set out to achieve, that the, the political ambitions get confused with the, the military ambitions. Um, they're very, very messy. And uh, I, I feel really, it, I feel very strongly for the people who have to fight in these wars. It's such a difficult prospect now. Uh, for them to go and, and participate in these wars. So let's hope that as time goes on, we there's less need for, for young yeah. people to go off and put their lives in danger. So conscription was happening to young men who were just two or three years older than me. I'm 64 now. It's done by birth date, yep. Um, yeah, that's right, during Vietnam, yeah. The, the Basically, it was for 20-year-olds um, and they would simply draw out days of the year, calendar days, and if that was your birthday and you were 20 then you were off to, to join the war. Um, so it was very controversial. I mean, it was a little bit of a holdover from the Second World War, but, it, you know, it was, it was always controversial. And then the idea of such an unpopular war that young men would be conscripted to go and fight, you know, potentially against their will, um, was just seen as, as terribly un-Australian. Um, yeah. And the, obviously the objectives of the Vietnam War and the political overtones of that war made it a very unpopular conflict, as we saw more recently with Iraq in particular. Afghanistan, not so much, because after September 11, people understood why we needed to fight in Afghanistan. Mm. But in Iraq in particular, you know, we all remember weapons of mass destruction and you know, following yeah. America into the war and all those sorts of things. So, I mean, the important thing is we create a distinction between the reasons for fighting that war and the people who actually have to do the fighting because at the end of the day, young people go off and fight um, where they're told to go and fight. So it's the politicians that make the decisions, but it's the young people that have to do the heavy lifting. With the conscription, there was probably more chance of being conscripted than winning the lottery. <laughs> well, that's very true. It's that's like, true. you know, you've only got 365 days in a year and your birthday falls in one of them. Yeah, it was a very, there was a very good chance of being conscripted. It was something that, uh, you know, they, they were doing, and they weren't just pulling one birthday out, they were doing several birthdays. So you had a, you had a reasonable chance. And, and, and probably half the people that fought in Vietnam were uh, conscripted. The sad thing about that was for families themselves. It, that was tough. It just wasn't tough for the person that was pulled out. It was for whole families. Absolutely. And the first televised war, as we know about Vietnam, first time that every night you could sit down at the six o'clock news and watch what was going on in Vietnam and see the destruction and the death that was being caused. So it must've been very difficult for families to go through that. 
My mother and I were talking yesterday because I, I said I was doing some research yesterday and uh, she's 92 and we were sitting down watching some of your videos, which was fabulous. But it, it sparked a few conversations. And one was about, is it the white feather for World War One? Yeah. Can you, do you want to talk about the white feather? Because I didn't know about the white feather. Yeah, it's a little bit, it's one of those stories that's gotten, I think, that has grown in proportion it's it's like anything and when you look back on history stories that maybe happen slightly in the telling become the you know the the entire story and that happened every day i i think the concept of the white feather is maybe a little bit overdone from what i've seen but the basic concept was that men who were of fighting age yet had not were not in uniform and were not wearing a return from active service badge were often seen as cowards and so given a white feather um, as a symbol of cowardice, and that that sort of forced them to to enlist. Having said that, uh, only about a third of all the men of military service age actually enlisted during the First World War. So it can't have had too much of an effect because two thirds of the men who were fighting age chose not to enlist at all, um, which was why there was such a heavy push for conscription because there were literally hundreds of thousands of men at home just working their ordinary jobs and going about their lives and not feeling it was their obligation to participate in the war. Um, so it's a really interesting question. I mean, we can't judge them. A hundred years later, it's not our place to judge whether that was the right or the wrong decision. All we can do is look at the facts. And only one third of the military age men who could have enlisted to go off and fight in that war actually did. Um, mm. And so when we hear about things like people being given white feathers in the street and, and pressed into service, there's no doubt there was pressure to enlist. People felt if you were a young, fit, able man, you should be off fighting in the trenches, not swimming at the beach. Um, there's a famous wartime poster that I have, which uh, sums it up very well, living on the northern beaches, which is a picture of a bloke swimming, which says it's nice in the surf, but what about the men in the trenches? Mm. So that sums up this idea that there were a large number of men, enough that they could feel that they, put a, they could put a poster out targeting just these types of men who were every weekend just going down to the beach and hanging out with their girlfriends and having a great time while there was a war on. So we, we should avoid this concept that the war was all consuming for everyone all the time, because the evidence to me suggests that it wasn't. It was certainly a major news event that was happening around the world. And lots of young men pondered whether it was for them or not, but there were very large enough. The majority of men who could have enlisted chose not to during the first world war. So it's really a fascinating part of the story. Well, the story, the conversation came up with my mum because her uncle was given a white feather and he was 16. Okay. And and he went off to war, and uh, he didn't live a long life after he came back because he was he was very he'd been very mentally affected. Tell us about I wanted to talk about because um, I was talking to some friends yesterday about this interview and and some of them were talking about the significance of the flowers, you know the poppy, the rosemary and the pine trees. Yeah, it's there's always been a. What we should remember about war is it's always fought in an outdoor environment. It's always fought out in the fresh air with the flora and fauna. So there's often an association with soldiers, between soldiers and plants, because they're lying often in the dirt with their face pressed up against these plants. So there's a couple of significant stories. So the the last two you mentioned, the rosemary and the pine cones, both are associated with Gallipoli because Mm -hmm. rosemary grows wild throughout Gallipoli. Uh, And so uh, ever since the Gallipoli campaign, rosemary has been seen as as the the sprig of, of, of plant that we should wear to remember the blokes that fought at Gallipoli. Interestingly, most of the men that fought at Gallipoli never associated rosemary with the campaign because it grew in isolated little pockets. Mm-hmm. The herb that they associated with the campaign was thyme, 
because um, wild thyme grows all over the Gallipoli Peninsula. And if you go there today, it is absolutely everywhere. Yeah. Um, and soldiers who were serving at Gallipoli talked about, particularly in the early days, fairly soon all the scrub got blasted away. But in the early days, in the day of the landing, they talked about how the machine gun fire slashed the plants and sprigs of thyme would end up down the, uh, down the collars of their tunics. So this rich smell of thyme um, pervaded in the opening days across the peninsula during the campaign. And it was a smell that they all often thought of with dread in years to come. It was not, they did not have fond memories of this, of this smell. Um, yeah. But rosemary does grow wild in, uh, in Gallipoli as well. Uh, you still see it there today. Uh, and so rosemary has become associated as the, the, the plant that we, um, we remember on Anzac Day, which is why everyone wears a sprig of rosemary uh, in, their, in their shirt on, on Anzac Day, which is quite common. Um, the pine cone uh, is associated with lone pine, which was one of the most famous battle sites on Gallipoli. And there was a lone pine tree that stood on that site on a plateau. On, and the, it was a major objective for the Australians. So they're always trying to get to this lone pine tree. And during the campaign, a soldier sent his mother some pine seeds from a pine cone, um, not from that specific pine, but from the area where there's lots of pine trees. And his mum then propagated those seeds back in Australia and grew a number of pine trees. And today we still have the descendants of those pine trees. Uh, there was one outside the Australian War Memorial until recently. It was recently destroyed in a storm. But outside all the major memorials in schools across the country, you can even buy them yourself. There's a, a gardening centre in, uh, in Canberra, which is the official provider of Gallipoli uh, pine tree. So you could actually buy a pine from Gallipoli to put in your school or in your backyard even, which was a descendant of one of those original Gallipoli pine pine cones. So the, the pine, the Gallipoli pine, the, the symbolism of lone pine is very closely associated. But when you talk about the poppy, in some ways the poppy is more associated with British service because oh, the, poppy, yeah. uh, the poppy grew wild in the fields of Flanders and in France on the Western Front. And poppies grow best in broken ground. So you can imagine that during the First World War with all the shell fire and the churned up ground, in, this, in the spring and summer, the fields which had formerly been barren would just explode into life with these blood red flowers that would just appear everywhere across the broken battlefields. It was the perfect condition for, for poppies to proliferate across the battlefield. So imagine to the soldiers to their, the shock of lifting their head up above the parapet and seeing that the whole battlefield was now covered in these beautiful red flowers. Of course, the blood red association as well. The, the poppy that grows in France and Flanders is quite a dark red. So the, mm. the feeling that these poppies were growing out of the ground where they buried their comrades and so much blood had been spilt was very difficult for them to avoid. And so after the war, the poppy became a very natural symbol of service and sacrifice on the Western Front. They, we, need, we need symbology. We need something that's easy to, to, to represent um, what was going on and to sum it up quickly. And the poppy was a perfect candidate for that. So Sir Douglas Haig, when he set up the uh, British Legion, which supported veterans, he suggested that the poppy would be a great symbol for the British Legion. And so the poppy has become, uh, well, they now call it the Remembrance Poppy. And particularly on Remembrance Day on November 11, the poppy is the, the, the in Britain in particular, is a very strong symbol of that war. Um, a little bit less so in Australia. We still We still have the poppy symbolism in Australia. Uh, but it's not as strong as it is in the UK and particularly associated with, well, Remembrance Sunday, which is the Sunday closest to November 11. Oh, what I want to talk about is your living history and TV. But as a historian, what led you to studying the history of World War I, II, etc. and Anzac Day? Talk, tell us a little bit about that. It's a great question. It's, um, it's really just my thing. It was always a, an interest that became an obsession that 
was a passion as well. It just, it, it, it's just, it just evolved over time. I was always fascinated in it and it just grew and grew. Yeah. So I grew up in West Wyalong in country, New South Wales, about 2,500 people. And um, yeah, my grandfather had served in the second world war and his brother had been killed in the second world war. And so I grew up in a family that really understood service and sacrifice. And I used to march with the school on Anzac day as part of my local school. And my dad played in the town band and, so I think when you grow up in the bush, you have a very strong connection to the service aspect of Anzac Day because there's just so many people who served and so many veterans that you march with. And yeah, but that, that, that doesn't explain it fully. Uh, it's, it's just always been something that's just driven me. And I always was going to, uh, I, I had to do something in this space. I had to learn more about the Anzacs and walk in their footsteps. And I've just been very fortunate that I've been able to turn it into a career. You didn't ever want to join the forces yourself? No, and again, I think it's important to create a distinction. I, I have huge respect for the people that serve in the Defence Force. I've got lots of friends that serve in the Defence Force and I have huge respect for those people. But again, we have to create a distinction that I mentioned before. When you study the First and the Second World War, you're studying the citizen soldiers. You're studying the people that worked in factories and on farms and as clerks and as bus drivers who left that behind and for a very brief period enlisted and went off and fought in a major world event that is quite distinct from the modern experience, which is people who join the Defence Force usually for decades as a career, as a very solid career option, which gives them a trade or a university degree while they're doing it, and is today a, a long-term, um, very fulfilling career that people embark on. And so even though there is always a link between the modern military and the people that came before, I don't think that in... In, it's not a lot of fundamental ways that you gain a greater understanding of the people who enlisted a hundred years ago, if you've served yourself, except for things such as I understand what it's like to be on parade. I understand what it's like to sleep out rough. I understand what it's like to come under fire. Of course, there's elements that make it more common, but um, my, uh, my interest and my desire to know more about the men of the first and the second world wars doesn't actively relate to to modern service in the defense force so huge respect for the people who serve um, but it was never something that um that, that was going to be on my path so you're living history you made documentaries all sorts of tv um your programs read the war I, and look i was listening and, and looking at some of the song yesterday and really really enjoying it and learning so much and also you're walking through the battlefield in vietnam which is a very small area. Can you tell us all about that? Because that's a big part of what you do. Yeah, thank you. It's very exciting. Over the last couple of years, I've um, really over the last 15 years, I've been mostly focused on running the Battlefield Tour Company and, and helping other people to walk in the footsteps of the Anzacs. And that's been incredibly fulfilling. Um, but recently, I've wanted to get more into the active history side of my, my work. Um, and, you know, 10 years ago, that would have meant writing a book. But today, there's just so many ways to produce great content to bring this story to life for people. So I wanted to do to do more in that space. So I set up, as you say, Living History. Um, and there's a few things I do there. I do a weekly podcast all about Anzac history. Um, but also, I've been able to do, um, as you say, some really interesting videos. Technology has enabled us now to produce amazing content, amazing video content, basically mini documentaries that, mm. in, that only years ago, only a few years ago would have had to have been produced by the ABC and recorded in this big studio and cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Today you can do them, you know, you and one other person, you know, a cameraman can come and with a, with a camera that fits in a backpack, 
you can head off to a battlefield and, and walk the ground and record and make an amazing documentary. So I'm really fortunate that that technology exists and you can mm. distribute it yourself as well through YouTube and Facebook and all the other channels. You can distribute this content. So you don't need a TV studio now. You don't need a TV network to get behind you. And I find that really amazing. And I, I love that because it means that I don't have to spend all my time in meetings with TV executives trying to convince them to make a TV show. If I think something's interesting, I can just go and do it. Um, and it's been fascinating. That Vietnam documentary you described where I was walking the long time battlefield, I recorded on my phone just in a day. And so, yeah. and then edited it together. So it was, it's literally just me walking across the battlefield. And so I'm really fortunate that I get to do that because over the years, people, um, as, you, as you said at the top of the interview, have bought my guidebooks so they could hear my take on how to visit the battlefields or they've paid lots of money to come on a tour, you know, and flown to the other side of the world to walk the footstep, in the footsteps with me. But today we can do it by logging onto YouTube and they can see me walking across Long Tarn um, carrying my phone and you know, just making what I think is really interesting content, um, just, just filmed on a, on a phone walking across the battlefield. So it's a really exciting time if you have something to say. And I would encourage anyone who's into history or any subject, if it's cooking or playing the guitar, anything you're interested in, there are wonderful opportunities today to go and make content and, and join that conversation. So I always encourage people, if you've got an idea that, you know, you think you'd like to share with people, just go and do it um, because it's certainly the time to, uh, to get out there and, to, and, and just make great content. It's a little bit about what I do with the radio station and now I've switched to Zoom, just finding content for my podcast and for the radio station and I absolutely love it. So, you know, I learn so much because I'm actually talking to experts. Yeah, and you're absolutely right, Karen. It wasn't that long ago that there were what I call the gatekeepers of content. So if you wanted to be a writer you had to get a book contract. If you wanted to be an actor, you had to get a TV gig. If you wanted to be a musician, you had to get a recording contract. It's, it's not the same today. You, there's no one standing in your way of making outstanding content. So, you know, I've been, I've been a big beneficiary of that in the history space that, um, I mean, even though hopefully I've got a decent reputation for, for, for knowing what I'm talking about, it's still been wonderfully liberating to be able to just produce content whenever I want to. And, um, and we're actually now expanding living history there's now, we now do three podcasts that we do. So my podcast plus two others that we publish. Um, and we're moving into book publishing later in the year. So our first book about the Gallipoli evacuation, um, written by Peter Hart, who is a wonderful historian. Um, we're going to publish that in uh, probably September that will be out just in time for father's day. So, um, there's just so many opportunities to tell great stories now. And I, I think it's a really exciting time to be in the history space. Talking about stories, uh, I think one of the benefits of having you along on, because uh, I did a trip last year and it was so important, the storyteller that came with you. Um, when a person really knows the content of where they're taking a tour and can tell you the history and a story, that's what makes the tour fabulous. Oh, absolutely. It's important no matter what sort of tour you do, but with a tour like this that we're talking about, a battlefield tour where you want to know what the experience was like for the men who were there, particularly in an environment that today has changed a lot from how it was a century ago. If you walk the First World War battlefields, you're not really going to feel like you're, you're actually standing where the Anzacs stood. There's no trenches and barbed wire anymore. Um, so that's why it's so important that you travel with a historian who brings that mm. story to life. And that's, that's, that's the absolute cornerstone of everything we do with the tour company. Is yeah. that, um, that just the quality of the historians that lead our tours. They're, they're absolutely outstanding. Much better than me. <laughs> you, you have a much better experience with our historians than you would if I was leading the tours. So it's, uh, it's really great. I have a huge respect for them. 
well, some of the people you were talking to in the videos that I was watching yesterday were just great. You know, I was watching a video about a chateau that had partly burnt down um, and also Menon that you took through the, the um, help me. Um, Menon Gate? Yes, Menon Gate. Sorry, I was having a mental blank then, That's the Menon Gate, yeah. And, you know, it's fascinating listening to the, the locals or the, the historians that knew about that fire and, and what that building was and then you're talking about men and gate and was really brilliant. Yeah, and that's the that's the that's the advantage of travelling with an expert is that chateau you described is in the Somme region of France and it's not a tourist attraction in any way, shape or form. It's still privately owned by a family that's lived there for many hundreds of years. Uh, but during the First World War in nineteen eighteen it got shelled and half the chateau caught fire. And they were able to put the fire out, but half the shadow was destroyed. So it's a big U-shaped building. And the whole, as you look at it, the whole left-hand side was destroyed by fire and was never rebuilt. So now, mm. so now yeah. it's an L-shape with, yeah. with an entire wing missing on the left-hand side. And there's still some ruins there. So you can stand there and look at the old ruins. But um, it's, it's just remarkable. What a wonderful piece of history. Talk about yeah. tell the story of the First World War. There's a building that was half destroyed. Uh, so um, that's, that's the sort of thing you find out by traveling with someone who knows the history really well because tourists would drive past that every day, of the, every day of the year without realising what they were looking at. So it's, yeah, it's, just it adds an extra of, dimension to the story. A part of a burnt-down building exactly. that never got demolished. Because <laughs> um, years ago, too, I worked, in, uh, I worked in the Loire Valley on a children's television series, and we worked at a chateau called Chenonso that, ex- that spans the river. And one part was, um, well, the, the actual chateau was used as a hospital, the, the floor of the chateau, one of the first floor of the hospital. And one side was um, with the French and the other side was the German side. I'm not explaining it very well, but it was a fascinating place to be. Yeah, it's amazing how many stories are tied up with those buildings. And that's why you want to, if you go over there, you want to travel with someone who knows everything about that history because they'll be able to let, you know, reveal those stories to you, again, on buildings that you may have missed or, or not realised were, uh, were part of the story. And so the tours that you take, where do you actually go? You, you actually visit Gallipoli? Yeah, we go everywhere now. It's a, it's a long time. When we started the company 15 years ago, it was me leading one tour a year. And now we've grown to doing more than 2,000 passengers every year. And um, we've got 60 different battlefield itineraries that we do. Wow. So the main, our main destination is France, the Western Front. So we, do, we now have lots of tours that go around France, including a weekly departure from Paris um we do gallipoli we do vietnam we do the pacific islands the uk germany really anywhere that there was a battle where australians fought we, we have a tour that goes there so all through asia through um, the, through thailand to thai berber railway singapore to the to show the surrender of singapore really anywhere there was a conflict we'll uh, we'll we'll take a tour there so i've got a fantastic team of historians who now escort those tours um it's just a really wonderful um dimension for people to add to their holiday experience. So we don't, most of our itineraries are now for people who are already intending to visit that destination. So people who are already going to Vietnam on a holiday can do a tour with us and explore the Australian battlefields or someone who's going to France can jump on a trip from Paris and explore those battlefields. And um, so it's really, it's, a, it's, it's the most wonderful aspect of what I do, being able to bring that to life for so many people. Must be pretty eerie some of these places when people go along and hear the stories and, you know, it must it must create all sorts of emotional, you know, emotions. Oh, it's a huge emotional connection, particularly when you go to places where there's still cemeteries, where there's military cemeteries from the wars. 
So places like France, Gallipoli, um, in Thailand, New Guinea, you know, when you go to these places and you visit these cemeteries, there's no, there's no more tangible reminder of what went on than actually visiting the graves of the men who were killed in these actions. So that's, that's very emotional. And during the first and second world wars, the, the Commonwealth war graves made a very, um, far sighted decision to allow families to put inscriptions on those headstones. And so when you go and visit, you could be walking through a battlefield in France or Belgium, 24 hours away from Australia, literally 15 or 16,000 kilometers from Australia and see inscriptions from those family members written a hundred years ago, just remembering their lost sons. So it's, 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 it's impossible not to shed a tear mm. if you're there and, and read some of those inscriptions from families who, who never got to visit the grave because a century ago, it was just too far to travel. So yeah. that's part of what we're doing now. We're, you know, all of us that visit battlefields are pilgrims and we're completing that journey that the families themselves never got to make. So it's, it's very emotional from that aspect as well. I spent a lot of time in the 1990s in Poland working again with a children's television series in 92, 94 and 96. And I visited Auschwitz and Birkenau many times and the Paviak Museum and lots of places obviously around Warsaw that have, so much history when it came to the war and uh, I, I love the Poles I think they're the most amazing bunch of people and I mean Poland was so um, devastated through the war so there's a lot of stories there. Yeah it's great I've done a lot of the battlefields in all the sites from the second world war in Poland as well and um, yeah they, they are very <laughs> I do love Polish people they they have suffered more than uh, most people in Europe during those wars but um, some absolute stories of horror and unbelievable courage in those places but it is very um it is confrontational it's 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 difficult to um to sort of process your emotions when you visit sites particularly like the concentration camps like Auschwitz. it's it's yeah difficult to reconcile what you're seeing so matt what is one of the places that you love the most to visit if you've got a favorite it's a great question, Karen. I'm always, usually my answer to that is whatever I'm studying at the moment. So whatever history book I'm reading at the moment, because they're all fascinating. I've never been to a battlefield that wasn't extraordinary. Um, oh, look, I, Gallipoli deserves its place uh, as our most iconic battlefield because the story is just so amazing and the terrain is so incredible. And, you know, the terrain was as big an enemy as the Turks in Gallipoli and it's relatively unchanged today. So you can go and stand on Anzac Cove and look up at the Sphinx and the that the, see the, the, the gullies and the ridge lines that the, that the Australians had to fight their way up. So Gallipoli is always a very emotive place to visit. Um, but I'm always drawn back to the Western Front, to France and Belgium from the First World War. I, I, I never tire of going there and there's just so many stories to learn. And Australia achieved so much during the fighting on the Western Front, particularly in 1918. And it's a story we just don't know enough about. It was by far Australia's most successful military year. It was 1918 where we did incredible things. Uh, on the Western Front. So I'm always drawn back to the Western Front. And, you know, it's not it's not too rough to have to go to France for work to enjoy nice food and wine and then get to walk the battlefields as well. It's not a, it's not a bad place to visit. So I always, I always enjoy my trips back to the Western Front. So during COVID now, because this is such a different time for every one of us, are you researching? What are you doing to keep busy now that you obviously can't travel? You may not be able to travel for a while. We've got Anzac Day coming up. What's what's Matt doing now? Well, I'm doing a lot of this sort of thing. I'm talking to a lot of other people in the media who are very interested to know the, these stories and to know how people can commemorate Anzac Day this year. So I'm doing a, it is very, very busy on the media side of things with interviews. 
but I'm taking the opportunity to produce content, to tell more stories. So through my own podcast, through the videos on living history, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here now speaking to you from um, the sort of a, a, a makeshift recording studio that I've set up in my bedroom. Uh, so I've got blankets hanging on the walls and recording gear all around me um, because I'm just, I'm, I can't get out anymore to, to go out and interview people. So I'm, I'm doing it from here. So, you know, I, I think it's a great opportunity for all of us to, to read, to listen to podcasts, to watch documentaries and to, especially around Anzac Day, to learn a little bit more about what went on because there's always another great story. There's always something more to know um, to, to expand our knowledge about what the Anzacs did. So I'm taking the opportunity to do that, to, to, to do more research and to tell more of these amazing stories because they are amazing and they deserve to be told. They deserve not to be locked away on bookshelves or in archives. They, they should be out there being absorbed by people. The last post, it's such um, a, moving, a moving piece. Can you talk about the, the last post, the significance? Yeah, absolutely. The last post, when in the First World War, when soldiers first enlisted, and if you can imagine, they were civilians who had no experience of army life now finding themselves in uniform. One of the things that struck them were the bugle calls that occurred at the start and the end of the day. And, uh, and so if you imagine an army barracks, uh, at the end of the day, they had to signal somehow that it was time for everyone to go to bed. And then in the morning, they had to be woken up again. And the way they did that is with bugle calls. And the last post was played at the end of the day to signify that it was time to sleep. Um, and that fairly quickly, when men started dying on the battlefield, it became quite a natural um, symbolism for the soldiers that, you know, that, that now they were, you know, saying good night to their mates forever, you know, the, mm. the eternal sleep. And so the, the, their minds harked back to those early training days in the barracks when the last thing they heard at the end of the day was the last post. And it's such a haunting refrain. It's, you know, you can't hear that without tears welling up in the eyes. So it became a very natural part of commemoration from the earliest days that, you know, we will say good night to these soldiers forever, the ones that will never wake up again. And so on Anzac Day, they play the last post and we have the minute silence to remember people killed. Uh, and then they play Ravelli, which was the song that was played in the morning to wake up the soldiers, the, the much more upbeat Ravelli yeah. that woke soldiers up in the morning. And so that's why we play those two. So the symbolism is we play the last post to remember those soldiers that are sleeping the eternal sleep. We have a minute silence to remember them. And then we play Ravelli, which is for us the idea that we are now waking up and we will get on with our lives but we, uh, we haven't forgotten about those men who serve. So there's some wonderful examples of it. Probably the most notable is in the town of Belgium. You would have seen this on my documentary. Is a wonderful memorial in, uh, in, in Belgium in the town of Ypres. Uh, Ypres is the French name, but uh, mm-hmm. the, in that, town, that famous World War I town is a wonderful memorial called the Menon Gate, which has 54,000 names of missing soldiers on it, and about 6,500 of those are Australian. And every night the EPA fire brigade comes out and plays the last post under that gate in memory of those soldiers. And they've done that every night since the memorial opened. Uh, the memorial opened in 1927. In 1928, they did the first last post service. And they've done it every night, rain or shine, even through years when no one turned up to watch. They've done it every night except for the four years of German occupation during the Second World War. Um, and the last post service began the day the town was liberated. Uh, in 1944. So um, that's an extraordinary commitment. And so if you want to talk about the last post and the haunting, the most haunting yeah. you will ever hear, hearing it under the men and gates surrounded by tens of thousands of names of missing soldiers is just remarkable. Yeah. Is there anything else, Matt, that you want to cover about Anzac Day this week and commemorating any messages? No, I, I think it's been great. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. 
how can people learn more about you and what you're doing? How can they find your books? Um, the best way is just through the website is a good starting point. So, I mean, it's it, living history is everything that I do. So you can find that on Apple podcasts or Spotify or Google play, however you access podcasts. So living history with Matt McLaughlin, but if you want access to all the content, the videos and, and everything else that I'm doing, um, the website is living history TV, Dot com uh, and that's got everything there so um, links to the YouTube channel where you can see the videos for free links to the podcasts interesting articles that I've written so it's all there on the website well Matt thank you so much and you're actually bringing to life my Anzac Day even more this this year it's made me think even more I'm hoping when I walk out and stand on the driveway at sunrise that I hear someone with a bugle I think that'll be an amazing um, Amazing for people to hear that when they're not able to go and do the usual commemorations. Yeah, I agree. And thank you for saying that. I, I hope that people find their own way to commemorate on Anzac Day. I mean, veterans know that we haven't forgotten. Veterans understand why there's no marches this year and why they can't go down to the pub. But it doesn't hurt to remember them. And what I've been saying to people is most people know a veteran. Most people have someone in their family who served or know a friend or a family who did. So give them a call. Just say, yeah. you know, sorry, we can't be there to have a beer with you, but we're certainly thinking of you. And when you say that to people, they go, oh, yeah, that's actually a great idea. I'll, I'll call Uncle Bob and tell him, you know, that I'm thinking of him. And, you know, I think that's a really important thing. Get on the phone and just, just say hi to these people and, um, and then be prepared next year for a bigger and better Anzac Day, hopefully, when we can all go back to, to join the marches again. Well, thanks, Matt. We're going to end it there. Would you like to say goodbye? Thank you very much for listening, everyone. And uh, I hope you enjoy Anzac Day from your lounge rooms or wherever you are. And, uh, and, and I hope you get the chance to walk the battlefields one day. It's, it's quite an extraordinary experience. Well, perhaps one day, Matt, I'll have to come walk the battlefields with you. Well, you, you're welcome anytime, Karen. It's, it's a remarkable experience. Cheerio, everyone. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, aging is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright. There's a sparkle in your eye It's not all I'm to find It's a wonderful life Let's go and climb mountains high Swim across oceans wide Let your heart be alive.